As we prepare ourselves to hear God's word this morning, I'm going to ask you to join me in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1. And we're going to begin this morning a consideration that will take us through this month as we work our way through the early portion of the Gospel of Luke. This morning we look at that section where there's the announcement of the forerunner, he who would come before Christ and prepare the way. Listen as I read God's word. I'm going to read from verse 5 down to verse 25 and then pray and then we will consider God's word together. Listen as I read. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and his, he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. Now... While he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not fear, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18, and Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of appointed service ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach from among the people. Let's pray. Lord, as we take time this morning to consider this passage of Scripture, we do so looking to you. We do so with the great confidence that your word reveals to us the truth 
of all that transpired in the past and all that is true and believable that our faith can rest upon and all that is sure and is coming in the days ahead. Lord, we thank you in, that in a world of so many opinions and so much uncertainty, you've given us your unchanging, reliable word. Lord, and we know also that every portion of it you've given for a good purpose. And we pray that the, the instruction and the things that we are to receive from this passage this morning, that you would, by your spirit, communicate it to each one who's here very effectively. Lord, grant that I would speak your word uh, accurately and soundly and give your people ears to hear. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is, um, as we come into this season, it is always our privilege every single day of every single year to reflect on Christ. And we know that it is because of Christ that we stand in the grace of God. But as we come into this season, we have, at least culturally, an increased opportunity to communicate and converse concerning these things with those around us. Because it's not unknown for towns and cities and people to begin to do things differently in this season than they do in other seasons. Maybe they buy trees and put them inside their houses. Maybe they attach lights in great number to buildings, set up ice rinks and set up all kinds of things that, that people gather together in, in a festive season and enjoy. But we also know that better than all of those things and as the basis for this season is the reality that the very Son of God was sent in the form of a man. That the eternal son, Jesus, came and was born in this world as a child. And so we celebrate that birth of Christ. But it's interesting sometimes to step back, as we will today, and, and see some of the things that God was working and weaving as he put things in place for the coming of his son. We know that in the sending of his son, there are a multitude of prophecies regarding Jesus. What tribe he would be born of. What city he would be born in. So many details are there. But not only of him. Even of the one that one would come before him. The, uh, the attention to detail demonstrated by God in the giving of the Gospels, in the sending of His Son, help us to be aware of this, that our God is so perfect and so powerful and, and the details and the precision of His purposes and work aren't exclusive to the sending of His Son. They are every day in every detail. And this gives us an opportunity to look back on those things and, and see some things put together. The first thing is I want us to see as we take up this passage is to look at the priestly parents. The priestly parents who are involved here are Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now as a priest, it would be, uh, he would have the freedom to marry anyone from throughout the tribes of Israel. 
he did not have to marry within the priesthood. But he did. And that would have been something that the people would have esteemed very highly. In the context of this, he actually hails as a descendant of one of the sons and divisions of Aaron. And the wife that he married also is a descendant directly of Aaron. Which takes us all the way back to the original establishment of the tabernacle. So, so these two were seemingly well chosen and, and particularly choice. But I, what I want us to also see is this. It tells us concerning them in chapter 1 verse 6. They were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, I want to just be cautious about that. Why is it saying it? Now, this is not the, they're not the first ones the scripture has ever said that concerning. But I ask you this, is this verse saying they never sinned? They never did wrong? They never failed? No, it's not. It is, it is speaking of relative to those of their time, relative to those of their community, and the general tone and character of their life was a commitment to obey God. Also within the context of the Old Covenant, you have to understand this, though someone would sin, if you sinned, there was a way to fix it. There were sacrifices that you went and sacrificed in order to make up for or pay or cover your sin and so their commitment was to do their best to live for to honor God in all that they did and whenever they would fall short and whether where they would stumble they would use the statutes and commandments to jump through the necessary requirements of appeasing or forgiveness or sacrifice to be back in right covenant standing with God so it shows a great level of commitment and there's a reason why that's stated here it isn't so that we would sit back and say they're wonderful and they're glorious and I wish every single one of us could be like Zechariah and Elizabeth though I will say that anyways wouldn't it be wonderful if somebody was to write a description of us and it might have these same kinds of words they walked in righteousness and blameless before God. What's also important about that is it's not just before men. They didn't do it only on the occasions to be seen. They didn't do it only when, when they knew that they would have to answer. They did it before God. It, it means they understood that God is the one that we live for. God is the one that we please. There's, there's, no, there's no secrets on the side. They really sought to do this. Now listen, the reason why in this passage it's giving us these details of a significant and extraordinary commitment to godliness is because of the next statement that it says about them at the beginning of verse 7. But they had no child. Now the, the reason why it's, it's telling us before it says, but they had no child, that they were righteous before God. They were walking blamelessly in his statutes is because in the eyes of the culture and tradition of that day, 
a woman is barren, not blessed of God. She can't have a child. You will see later at the end of this chapter, she says, God has removed my reproach. It was a disgrace. If we, that's a better term for us than we don't use the common term reproach. It was disgraceful because people would always have in their mind, I wonder what they did. I wonder what sins they're guilty of that God has not allowed them to have children. And so that would stir up in the minds of people, ah, they're facing this difficulty, they're facing this problem, they're having this loss, they are being punished for something. I want to ask you this, do people still think like that today? Yes, they do. Something is going wrong with some... Ah, God is punishing them for something. Or maybe even we do it to ourselves. Something is going wrong and we're facing a hardship in our lives. There is a remarkable tendency to say, God must be trying to teach us a lesson for something that we've done wrong. He must be fixing us. We need to learn this. We need to do this. And you know what? That may be the case. Because those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. So go ahead and prayerfully consider whether or not there need to be some adjustments. But know this, God's ways are not man's ways. Those who are listening during the call to worship, his ways are not ours. Here the idea is this, men are going to be saying for many years, she is now an old, old, older lady and he is now an old man. The time of having children has passed. God did not give it to them. It's almost sealed in people's minds. They must have done something wrong. But the scriptures boldly declare, no. There was no wrong in them. Well, then why? And men are always going to ask that question. And we're not always going to get that answer. Because it is the purposes of God. Now, in this one, we see the same thing happen during the life of Christ. The disciples were with him, and it tells us in John chapter 9, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? That even in itself is an interesting question. Did this man sin? Is that why he was born blind? Not sure how much rampant sin takes place in the womb. But, or whether it is the thought of maybe God foreseeing sins that he would do. That he made him blind in advance. But their thought is, bad thing happens to bad people. And so if this person is blind, if this person is barren, then someone is at fault well the reality is this we know everyone's at fault to some extent but not everything negative in our lives is directly connected to an act of disobedience or an act of sin it's not all punishment Jesus's answer in that Jesus answered it was not that this man sinned or his parents which those were the only two viable answers to the disciples. It, it's, it's either these, one of these guys did wrong. And what was the answer? 
neither of them did wrong, Jesus finishes, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Which means sometimes the purposes of God are not for punishment, but to make known his power, to make known his grace, to make known his strength. We, maybe this is part of our tendency. We tend to think it must be punishment. It must be corrective because somehow we think it's all about me. <laughs> it's all about us. What if it's not about us? What if it's about him and him accomplishing his purposes? What if we're not the, the hero? What if we're not the main actor on this stage? What if everything is God's, of him, through him, and to him, it's God's? And we stop trying to put ourselves at the center of God's plan. And we make see that he is the center of all that exists. And we serve and honor him. The same thing in the lives of these two. Nothing could be pointed to in the parents or that man that he was born blind. But God had a purpose. Nothing can be pointed to in Zechariah and Elizabeth. That they were without child. But God's purpose. And God's purpose in theirs, he was going to also make known his power. They were righteous. They were earnest. So we see great piety in the parents. The second thing I want us to see in the context of it is what I would say regarding these priestly parents is the problem for the parents. Not only were did they have no children, speaking of their experience from marriage until that stage. But now the odds of having children are not just diminished, but dead. Uh, none of us necessarily are, uh, we're, we're all aware that certain transitions take place in our bodies as we age. And this is the same kind of thing that happened with Abraham and his wife Sarah. It tells us this in Genesis 17. Uh, 17, 17. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed when he was told that he and Sarah would have a child. He, and he said, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah who is 90 years old, bear a child. Not only her age, because some of us may say, well, back then they lived longer, so maybe she hadn't yet transitioned. No, listen to what it says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. I know transitioned isn't the usual phrase. I'm trying to... All right. By faith, Sarah herself received the power to conceive even though she was past the age. All right? The ability to conceive was no longer present with her. She had transitioned. She was on the other side of, of hot flashes and all of those things. She, it, there was no possibility and yet the hand of God 
did what was medically impossible, not merely improbable, not going to happen. But she received the power to conceive, and it says, since she considered him faithful who had promised. If she had looked at her husband, what would she have seen? A hundred-year-old man, which, I mean, I don't know exactly what he looked like, but we don't visualize a hundred-year-old man as being at the, peak of his, at the peak of his power, right? We don't think of a hundred-year-old man as, yeah, look at that guy. You think, oh, yeah, his days are done. And if she looked at herself, what would she think as well? 90s-year-old. I mean, these, these are not nimble people. And, and their bodies are, are diminishing and decaying. If they look at themselves hopeless, but who did she look to? She believed in his faithfulness since she considered him faithful. Her husband, it's not in him to make me have child. It's definitely not in me. Even when we were of the age, we were unsuccessful. Now, no way. But then what happens? God granted. The same kind of thing, just, just culturally speaking, the terminology used here in this passage was most often used, so I'm, it's somewhat speculation, I'm simply giving you the history of the language, means she was likely approximately in the 60 plus age range, which is not ideal for mothering. And yet God was going to give her a child. It says, first of all, in verse 7, she was barren, which is a term for infertile. She could not conceive. It was impossible. She was incapable of conception. And they were both advanced in years. It ain't happening. Unless what? I mean, that's, what, that's, uh, that's one of the things that's so encouraging. You can look at the face of the impossible. You, you can look at your neighbor. You can look at your boss. You can look at uh, 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 people that you love and care for. And you can say, it's impossible for them to change. It's impossible. But I ask you this. Is it impossible? It's impossible for them... It may be impossible for you to get through to them because you've tried. But here's the beauty of it. Where it's impossible for everyone around. It's still easy work for God. Because we've got to understand this. This isn't something that God simply did once. God did this on a number of occasions. There was a remarkable conception of, of Samson. There was a remarkable conception of, of uh, Samuel. I mean, on and on through, God would show himself mighty in these ways. And then the third thing about these priestly parents that I want us to see is this. The privilege of the priest. All right. And sometimes we don't get this. It tells us this in, in verse 8 and 9. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple and to burn incense. Now, when we read that, 
it, it doesn't necessarily communicate a lot to us. So I'm going to communicate this, hopefully in a way that makes sense, according to the customs of these people. At this time, so it is God's purpose to give a child to Zechariah and to Elizabeth, and this child is going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. He's going to be the one who prepares the way and declares his coming in a unique and special service where he would fulfill prophetically the coming of Elijah because he himself would come in the spirit of Elijah. And so, but in order to, to cause all of this to work out, you've got to understand this. At this time in history, there were approximately 18 to 20,000 priests. That's a lot of priests, isn't it? And these priests lived throughout the, the kingdom in various areas, and they were divided into different divisions. There were 24 divisions. Okay, so let's take the smallest number for the sake of uh, simple mathematics. 18,000 divided into 24 divisions is obviously 750. Okay, I didn't just do the math in my head, I did it beforehand. <laughs> But So 750 priests, and, and the way that it would work is they would come and they would serve for two weeks a year. So in the span of a year, that division had two weeks responsibility to come to Jerusalem and look after the affairs of the temple. So that 750 plus priests would come and attend to all the affairs of the temple for those two weeks. Now, all of the priests would have to come again for the major festivals, but these were the, the weeks of responsibility. So they would come, and when they would come there, for each of the particular responsibilities in those two weeks, the various duties, it would be done by the casting of Lot. The specific privileged responsibilities of offering the sacrifices, sprinkling the blood, laying out the showbread, um, burning the incense, were unique and special things. That it was not uh, impossible for some, it was quite common for someone to be a priest and to go through his whole priestly life and never get the opportunity to do some of those things. Because there's 750 of them that the lot is being cast, who gets to go in? So here they are all lined up, and the lot was cast, and who gets to go in to offer the incense? Zechariah. Now understand, is any of that by chance? We know that in this world, nothing is ultimately by chance, because we, we are aware of what it says in Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast in the lap, but it's every answer is from the Lord. Which means even the casting of dice, even those things that seem random to men, are by God's design. So here at this late date, at this late age, with all these people assembled, that he was the man selected who would come in and do that, was uniquely by God's personal providence. In his life. Now some may say. Well could not God have done it earlier. 
Surely. Could he have done it later? Surely. But we know that he sent forth his son in the fullness of time. So God doesn't ever do anything late or early. He always does everything perfectly. And here in just the months before Mary herself will conceive, God causes not only that division to be assigned to come on duty, but that lot to fall to this man to come into the temple on that day and to be the one who does that incense. And the way it would generally work is three, three men would go in there together. Three priests would go in there together. One would clean up and put fresh hot coals. Uh, uh, another one would uh, do other things related to the showbread and related to the sacrifice. And then they'd leave. And as, they would, as these three would approach, they would hit, hit a gong that would announce to all of the people that they are getting ready to go inside. When that gong would be hit, all of the people who were around, and it says here that there was a great throng, so it's likely on a Sabbath day that this was taking place, the people would gather together outside to pray. And as they would gather together outside to pray, these three would go in. And they would do the preparation and then two of them would leave. And so as soon as the two of them would leave, come out the door, all of the people in the courtyard realized the incense is getting ready to be offered. And in their, uh, in their understanding of it and in their experience of it, it, it this, is, this is how they would understand it. In Psalm 141, for example, in verse 2 it says this, Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. In Revelations chapter 8, it says this in verse 3 and 4, And another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints, rose before God from the hand of the angel. Okay, so in the minds of the people and in the practice of it is, this is seemingly to them, especially as custom and tradition swelled, this is the time that we have the greatest likelihood of getting our prayers answered. This is when, now, is it, is it actually true? Most likely not, but... This is, this is how superstition and tradition develops. And so they would ring that bell. They would go, when those two would come out, people would begin offering their prayers, knowing that when those two men step out, that incense is going to be thrown on. And that, in a sense, is raise, raises up before God. And in their, in their uh, understanding and thoughts of how it would go, our prayers will be collected with the incense by the angels and taken up and poured out before God. So now's the time to get the best shot at an answered prayer. And so they would gather together and they would all be prepared to do this. Now most of the time, Zechariah would, would have been outside in the past. Praying and joining with, with, with the prayers of others. We know that some people in the, in the community there, Simeon, was praying for the consolation of Israel. He was longing for the Messiah. Anna the prophetess was longing for the Messiah. So we can strongly assume the nature of their prayers. 
God, send your Messiah. God, bring about your promised word. This is also coming when you're, 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 you're in a period where there has been about a 400-year gap. The end of the age of the prophets. There has been a, a famine of the hearing of God's word. There is a dearth of, of visions. And so when someone would go in there, they're not expecting a vision. And as he, he goes into, he would throw that incense on after they've left. And as he throws that incense on, we have the scripture telling us of the appearance of an angel. And of the announcement that the angel makes. And here's what it says to us in this passage. Right here in, in verse 12, Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. And that wouldn't be surprising because you're alone in there. And no one else is supposed to be there. And you're looking ahead. And again, this is the, might be the one time in his life that he ever gets to go into that holy place. That's the holy place of which there's only a veil between that and the holy of holies. That a person goes only once a year, and that's only the high priest. But it was rare to get to even go into the holy place. And here he is for this moment alone in the holy place, placing the incense, and suddenly he's not alone. Out of nowhere, there's another being there. Again, likely in the form of a man, and Gabriel appears there, and his first response is, is fear. Because someone should not be here. And I, 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 we don't have any details about the appearance and whether there was radiance and, when, and the size and the shape. We don't have any of that. But angelic appearances often produced shock and dismay. And uh, the angel then begins to speak to him. And what's amazing is what it says in verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard. Now what's interesting is um, if you want to trace the history of this, he's been coming for years. Generally you would start coming when you're about 20 and now we know he's somewhere around 60s. For about 40 years he's been coming for his two weeks a year where he'd be among those outside every morning when the incense is being thrown and he'd be putting before the Lord that special prayer request in hopes that he might get that answer. And all of those years went by. Did he get his request? He did not. Here, interestingly enough, is an occasion where the others are outside praying and he's busy putting it on, not even necessarily praying himself as he's conducting his responsibilities. And the angel appears and says, your prayers have been heard. Now, this, to me, I think we just stop a moment and think of this. My prayers have been heard. Ah, uh, I began praying 40 years ago. <laughs> And I didn't get the answer. And I was still praying 35 years ago. And, and still didn't get the answer. And now at the end of all this time, you're telling me my prayers 
have been heard. And so here's the comfort and strength that we need to understand, brothers and sisters. Whether or not we have received what we have requested of the Lord, we have this confidence. Our prayers have been heard. He, to this point, had not received the answer he had sought, but nonetheless, his prayer was heard by God. So we have that confidence. God hears. And if God is pleased to answer in our timing, good. If God is pleased to not answer in our timing, good. God is pleased to never answer as we wanted, good. Or if he seems to answer a little too late, good. It's all fine. You know, I, I don't think he's going to get involved here in the, where were you 35 years ago? Or, I don't know if I've got the strength now to raise a little one. Uh, oh, my. None of that. It's, your prayers have been heard. And so, to me, the comfort is this. Look, we can pray for many years something. And even if we don't get it, here's the confidence. God hears the prayers of his people. And he will answer according to his timing. Perfectly fulfilling his purposes. And so we pray knowing that he hears us. And we wait trusting in his will. Amen? And so he prays these. Your prayers have been answered. And the, and the answer to his prayers is... You will be given a son, and you will call his name John, which means God is gracious, giver, God's gracious gift. It speaks of God entirely being the bestower of graciousness, goodness, and favor. And so this son would be a declaration of God's graciousness and favor that he set on him. Uh, but what's, what's remarkable about this, when, when you look at it, is um, your prayer has been answered and you will receive a son. But it's not just a son. He's going to say a few things about the son and I'm just going to share these things in quick succession so we get a picture of this son. First of all, with the, with the coming of this son, there's going to be celebration. Because it's an astounding thing for people of such remarkable vintage to have children. And many who loved them would have been longing for them to have that. And God's going to give them to them. And it says that they will have this in verse 14. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. It would bring about great celebration. And that celebration is not random, but it's going to be directed really towards God, the gracious giver. Why that son would be named that so, so that all of the joy and the gladness would not be merely directed in the boy, but the one who has given the boy. Beyond celebration, we also see that, that this boy will have distinction. He would be, in a sense, like a Nazarite. Very similar terminology to what's stated about uh, Samson. In verse 15, he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink, strong wa drink, uh, drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. It says he will be great before the Lord. Now, that is a remarkable comment. 
Because he may not ultimately be supremely great before man. Man will be capable of removing his head. Man will be capable of mocking him and calling him uh, names and making fun of what he eats and how he dresses. Which were odd and uncomfortable. But again, when you look at it, he would have distinction. There were certain things that would mark him out. That from the day that he was born, he would be distinct. He was not to just tread the normal path and, and enjoy the normal things that people indulge themselves in. Oh, how sad that he won't ever get to have wine. How sad that he wouldn't ever get... Not how sad! As men might say, oh no, he's denied. The scriptures say, oh, he is great before the Lord. See, the world thinks that all of these things are great. And all of these experiences, you don't want to miss out. No, these things are all foregoable. They're all okay to be passed on the side. There are a multitude of men who have embraced and indulged in these things. They are not great in the sight of the Lord. All that matters is who we are in the sight of God. And we know that he would be great in the sight of the Lord, not by his own doing, but by God's own doing, who would fill him with the Spirit from the womb. So it's God's own grace that is going to make this man great. Not only celebration and distinction, but we're going to see direction. It tells us in verse 16 that he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. God is going to use his declaration of repentance and his announcement of the one who's coming after him who is the Lamb of God that will take away the sin of the world. One who's coming after him that he is not fit to untie his sandals. He's going to use that announcement to turn the hearts of many to the Lord. What a tremendous privilege he's going to be used of God. Now what, I, what is interesting there is he's going to turn many, not all. Because this is going to be a season where because of the work that he does in preparation, by the time uh, Jesus is sending out his disciples, he can say, look, the fields are white for harvest. John has come before and he has sowed the seed. The time of reaping has come. Workers, pray that the Lord will send workers out into the harvest to bring them up. But that planting of seed and that gathering of harvest is all that work entrusted by God as he would go out and turn the hearts of many children back and further he was he was given a role of preparation verse 17 he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared a very specific preparation. He would be the fulfillment of the prophesied Elijah. It was prophesied in the book of Malachi who would come before the Lord. And he would prepare the people. Now what's astounding is uh, everyone was expecting it would have to actually be Elijah. But Jesus in Matthew eleven fourteen said, if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. No, no, if God said it's going to be Elijah, 
then it's got to be Elijah. That's what men say. If God said this, and we think that we can pick and choose in ways and means that God has to fulfill his prophecy. Well, God not only gave a, a double portion of the spirit Elijah to Elisha, but the spirit of Elijah was then placed upon John, and Jesus said, he is the fulfillment of that. Men can jump up and down and run round and round all they want to and say, nope, he can't be the Messiah because Elijah didn't come. And they're wrong. If God wants to fulfill Elijah in the, the prophecy of Elijah, in the person of John, that is God's prerogative. God is the one who gives the prophecies. God is the one who defines the terms of the prophecies. God is the one who declares the significance and spiritual depth of the prophecies. And God's the one who tells us how and when they are fulfilled. And this is one of those ones that tells us, be very careful with prophecy. It's possible for you to pick your favorite interpretation, and it may not be the right one. So be patient, be prayerful, search the scriptures that they might reveal, and indeed do reveal, what is true. Also, the last thing that I want us to, um, to see with regard to this is, um, well, how can I say this? We've... We've seen the priestly parents. We've seen the angels' announcements of all these uh, characteristics. The last point that I made this morning is simply this, and it sounds a little bit unkind, so I apologize if it sounds unkind, but it's this. Doubters are dumb. But dumb in, in, the, in the truest sense of dumb in this passage. Many, I, I mean, I hope you all know this, but the historic use of the term dumb means that a person has not the ability to speak. We usually use it as a reference to someone's level of intelligence, right? And usually when we say someone is dumb, we're wishing they wouldn't speak, but they do, and far too much, right? And so that... but. Here, this is what God says to him. You're going to have this son. He sent this angel. And the angel announces it to him. And what is the simple response? Which makes sense. He says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How can I believe this? Some, are, some might be saying, and this is the challenge in the wording. A lot of the scholars say when he says, how shall I know this? It's like, what sign are you going to give me like Gideon did and others before him? What sign are you going to give me so that I know? And, and, and my logical thing would be this. How about this as a sign, Zechariah? An angel will appear to you and declare from God the things that are true. I mean, what, what other sign do you need than an angel appearing to you in the holy place in the inner temple? I mean, I think... That's a pretty good sign. But also linguistically, how shall I know these things? In, in the Hebrewistic sense, it could all also be, how will I experience these things? Being that I'm old, and my wife is also old. Uh, so whether it is an expression of a demand for a sign, or just the broad expression of, I don't think this can happen. Uh, you know, of his doubt, 
There's no question the problem he suffered from here is doubt because in verse 20 it says, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things happen because you did not believe my words. Now what I want us to understand for a moment is also this. You know what God did not say? You didn't believe my words. You don't get the baby. I mean, I, you, you prayed for this for years. I come to you in this place. And I tell you, your prayers have been answered. And you're going to have a son. And you won't believe it? Forget you. But thankfully, God's ways are not our ways. And, and God says, all right, you're going to get him. But because you would dare speak declaring your doubts, you're not going to speak again until all of these things are fulfilled. And so he goes out from there and he has to try to make signs. A man who has no training in sign language of any sort. And so he's trying to explain and it's not working out well. And they have no idea what's going on. And further, it says, it's going to say when the time Let's see, uh, verse 23, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. So he still had to finish out his remaining week or week and a half uh, of time as he's serving there in the temple and doing the work that he has to do before he goes home. So he journeys home in silence and he meets his wife. And I'm sure he would have struggled to convey to her all that happened. And you can work yourself this afternoon on visualizing how he would attempt to communicate to his wife that he went in, I went in, offered the incense and, and the angel and the belly, and, and how he would somehow communicate all this to her in a way that she would get it. All right, not only has he gone mute, he's gone crazy, because I don't know what he's saying, but... In the course of time, she conceived and had child, which um, would have seemed impossible to men. Even really, moments later, um, when, when Mary would come, in Luke chapter 1, verse 36 and 37, it says, Behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God that is declared to Mary at the at the promise of the sending of the son and I tell you that is really what the certainty and special reality of what comes across in Christ remember in the days of Christ it was also this his disciples asked him then who can be saved and his response was what what is impossible with men is possible with God. Christ himself made possible what was absolutely and utterly impossible, and that is that a sinful man would stand accepted and beloved before a holy God. Brothers and sisters, because of Christ, we are, in a sense, the children of the impossible. 
but God has made it possible. So simply in reflecting on these things this morning, we see this, the priestly parents, we saw the piety of the parents and their godliness, and yet their own experience was difficult. And, and so it's part of that to understand this. Uh, they could be bemoaning themselves, we never had kids, we never had kids. Do you or I have a list of things in our life that are less than perfect? Less than ideal? Maybe some people don't like their jobs, they don't like their co-workers, they don't like their house, they don't like their neighbors, they don't like their school, they don't like their, well, if they don't like their friends, they should stop being friends with them. But there's all kinds of things that we don't like, that we would like to change, that we might want to blame others for. But in reality, you sit back and realize this. Everything is as it is, not by happenstance or random chance. Everything is as it is by the will and purposes of God. Both the things that I list that I like as well as the things I list that I don't like. God is in control of these things and he's working his purposes. And I may not understand them, but you know what? My responsibility isn't, isn't to say, God, when you do fix all these things that I don't like, then I'm going to get faithful for you. Here they were, years and years of not getting, but did they waver in their faithfulness? No, because they were serving God not for what they could get, but because God is God, and as such, he is always worthy of all that we would give of ourselves to him even if he should withhold from us what we want him to give. The priestly parents, we saw their piety, we saw their problems, barren and old. We saw the privilege that he got chosen by Lot to come into that place. We, we were able to see the angel's announcement that declared his prayers have been heard and he would be given a son. That son would be a source of celebration and distinction and direction and preparation for the purposes of God. We see also, also that when it comes to the power of God, when it comes to the purposes of God, when it comes to the word of God, all doubters are dumb and were that they truly were. If you're going to doubt and defy the word of God, oh, it would be far better, as Job says at the end, to put your hand over your mouth. It would be far better not to speak it. Because all that men speak against God, against his word, against his promises, against his power, it will all prove to be in every sense remarkably foolish. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that you record these things for us that we might know your power, that we might see the precision of your purposes, that we might see the way that you orchestrate the details of events and, and the way that you do so in ways that defy our expectation and understanding. But Lord, we come to you. We honor you. We glorify you for who you are. And we just pray that you would continue to um, do great things in our lives uh, through your word as we look to you. We thank you that in Christ we have salvation. What men could have never achieved, what would have remained impossible. You have not only made possible, but you have accomplished in our own hearts by your power and grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.